So here's the question. Is Jesus coming today? May 21, 2011. Is Jesus coming today? Can you believe the story that the world now is tracking? Amazing, amazing. The London Independent. Not exactly a religiously inclined tabloid in that great city. Ran a story on what the what the world, what the nation, certainly our nation, is talking about. I've got it right here. Here's the online edition of it. I don't know if you can uh, see the the headline, the big headline in the print print off edition. U.S. preacher, can you see that? U.S. preacher warns end of the world is nigh. 21 May around 6 p.m. to be precise. 21 May. Well, that'd be today, wouldn't it? Around 6 p.m. That's just a few hours away now, isn't it? If Jesus were coming today at 6 o'clock, how would you be living right now? What would we be be doing today if Jesus were coming at 6 o'clock today? Let me read just a line or two out of uh, from this, obviously to this congregation, well-known story. The end of the world is nigh, 21 May to be precise. This is from the Independent in London. That's the date when Harold Camping, a preacher from Oakland, California, is confidently predicting the second coming of the Lord at about 6 p.m. And I'm presuming that would be Pacific time, his time. At about 6 p.m., he reckons 2% of the world's population will be immediately raptured to heaven. The rest of us will get sent straight to the other place. Every day, Mr. Camping, an 89-year-old former civil engineer who grew up Baptist, speaks to his followers via the Family Radio Network, a religious broadcasting organization funded entirely by donations from listeners, such as their generosity, assets totaled $120 million, that his network now owns 66 stations in the U.S. alone. So he's been talking to a lot of people over the last few weeks and months. Those deep pockets were rated to allow Family Radio to launch a high-profile advertising campaign proclaiming the approaching Day of Judgment. More than 2,000 billboards across the U.S. are adorned with its slogans, which include Blow the Trumpet, Warn the People. We now know there are 5,000-plus billboards worldwide in Israel, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Iraq. 5,000-plus. In Vietnam, listen to this, in Vietnam, another news story, the, uh, the ethnic minority, the Hmong, apparently have a Christian proclivity because they have been stirred up by this May 21 message and have gathered by the thousands on the border between Laos and Vietnam, leading the Vietnamese authorities to arrest them by the thousands, disturbing the peace, they said. This isn't a little in the backwaters of Michigan story. This is global. A fleet of logoed camper vans. You've seen those, haven't you? NBC was quite, uh, uh, quite uh, generous in their coverage of this story this week. 
touring, touring every state in the nation. Final words from Mr. Camping. It's getting real close, he said to the Independent on Sunday. It's getting real close. It's, it's really getting pretty awesome when you think about it. We're not talking about a ball game, he said, or a marriage or graduating from college. We're talking about the end of the world, a matter of being eternally dead or being eternally alive. And it's all coming to a head right now, end quote. Wow. If you read my blog today in the worship bulletin, don't read it now. Or go to our website. It's on the website as well. I carefully, I spent a little bit of time examining the logic. I found their online paper, 25, 29 pages. Peruse the paper. Amazing calculations. In my humble estimation, the numbers are convoluted and the logic is absent. But... In fact, my friend Doug Batchelor, people have been sending me this story. Thank you. CNBC carried the story. Doug Batchelor, all right? Preacher, evangelist. Doug Batchelor has issued, a, issued an invitation to Harold Camping, and the press naturally would pick up on this one. He said, I'll give you $100,000 if you'll give me your 66 stations. You'll be gone, and I can use the stations after you're gone. <laughs> it's clever logic. It's clever logic. And then Doug goes on to defend why we can't know the day or the hour. We laugh. We laugh. But I'm going to say a however right here, and it's a very big, a huge however. I'll tell you what. My hat is off to the followers of Harold Camping, who, without fear or shame, have been standing on the street corners of America and the world, loudly proclaiming their conviction that Jesus is coming soon who have done so in the face of unmitigated public ridicule. My hat is off to them. I'm not laughing about them today at all. Because they remind me, painfully remind me, of another Baptist preacher. Almost a couple centuries ago, who himself stunned America with the astounding message that the end is near and Jesus is about to return. His name, William Miller, his followers by the thousands, without shame or fear, stood on the street corners of this fledgling nation and pronounced their conviction, Christ is coming. And they did it, by the way, to unmitigated public ridicule. Question. So how is it with the followers... The spiritual children of this William Miller who call themselves, these men, women, teenagers, young adults, and senior citizens, who call themselves capital A Adventists. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you told a stranger that you believe Jesus is coming soon? Not your somebody you know. When was the last time you told a stranger you believe Christ is coming soon? We ought not to be laughing at this community. Their fervor is enviable, which is precisely Gabriel's point. As we continue today, the gospel according to Gabriel, part two, precisely Gabriel's point. Open your Bible with me, please, to the gospel of Luke, the gospel of St. Luke. You weren't here last week when we launched this little four-part miniseries. You've got to hear part one. It's sitting on the website. We'll put the website up in just a moment. But last week we were in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel appears for the first time in the New Testament right here. He's only by name here. We'll find him in the Old Testament as well, by name. This little mini-series examining the words of Gabriel in the Bible. 
So here comes narrative. Dramatic story number two. Luke chapter one. Now last week we were with the teenager virgin, Mary. All right? We were with young Mary. This week we're going back five months, six months, to the story that actually precedes her story. Luke chapter one. By the way, you didn't bring a Bible, pull the Pew Bible out. You got to get this. You, you need to track the Pew Bible, track this narrative rather, in a Bible. It's page 688 in your Pew Bible. I'm in the new, New International Version. This just came out in 2011. This is the updated NIV. And so I'm doing, doing this little mini series in this. And you'll see why in a moment. All right? So, the New King James, that's the uh, Pew Bible. You use that. Let's go. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Those of you watching online, by the way, Grab your Bible. Don't just sit here and look at the computer screen. Grab your Bible. Join us. Follow along. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So all of these Levites are divided up into cohorts. They're divided up into teams. And he's, this, this Zechariah is on the team of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So they're both Levites, okay? Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. I want to hit the pause button right there. I was talking last week with my friend Ronnie Cluzet. Ron Cluzet is the net 2011 preacher. Four months from today, he's going to the whole nation, and we'll be plugged into it too. He's a member of our congregation right here. We were at a Board of Elders retreat uh, last Sabbath afternoon. So I'm talking to Ron afterwards. And I don't know how we got into this, but Ron made the point, and it's fascinating to me. He said, Dwight, look, it's, pro- it's probably not that God looks at a child and says, okay, I want that child, I want that child to, uh, to be a prophet, and so no matter what happens to that child, I'm just going to track it all through life, and when he gets really ready, I'll use the child. Probably not. Ron said, wouldn't it be something if, in fact, what God does on this planet is he watches his earth children? There are certain children that begin to show a proclivity to Him. They spend more time than the other kids do with Him. They talk to Him. They're alone in prayer with Him. They love His Word. And God is saying, hey, 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 hey. Hey, yo, Satan, have you seen Job? What do you think about my friend Job? Now, Job hadn't done a thing to uh, be called to mission. God is just talking. He said, yo, have you seen Job? God watches His earth children. Maybe God's watching you. Just like Zachariah and Elizabeth. He's watching you. He's been watching you all your life. I wonder if that girl's going to turn out to be what I need. I wonder if that boy is going to be. Look at his age now. Is he too old? Apparently not. Are you open to God watching you? And saying, that boy has a heart for me. I kind of like that. I'm going to use him. Maybe that's the way it works. And he doesn't pick us out of a hat. He says, let's just watch how he develops. Watch that girl. Zechariah and Elizabeth caught God's attention. Now read verse verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now this is the, 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 the new NIV and it puts very old. What we can know from the narrative, you put the few verses together, it, 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 it makes it clear that they are no doubt old enough to be dues-paying, card-carrying members of AARP. Do you know what AARP is? You don't want to ever find out. Now, it's a great organization. It's an organization for retired people. That's what the RP stands for. I'm not sure what the AA does, but it's important too. So they're, they're, they're obviously 
In fact, if you take Zachariah's words to, uh, that are coming up just a moment in this narrative, it seems clear that they're in their mid to late 60s, all right? Mid to late 60s. So they're their retirement age today. Now once, here we go, the story goes now. Once, verse 8. When Zachariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, that would be in the holy temple of Jerusalem, Verse 9, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now listen to this, fascinating. Here's what they would do. The president of the priestly council would put all the priests who are on, on duty for this particular season, he put them in a big circle. He said, all right, guys, stick out a finger. Stick out as many fingers as you want. Well, you've got five total, so that's one hand. Stick out a finger. So they put out uh, three, two, whatever. Then he said, somebody pick a number, 70. He would start counting fingers, and when he lands on number 70, you're it. That's how they chose. There are four lots. The third lot was the most sacred. If you got this, if, you, if your finger was the one that the high priest stopped on, you'll never get to do this again. Only once in a priest's lifetime will he be entrusted with this, and that is to stand before the massive, golden, weaved veil before the physical presence of God, the most holy place, and you will burn incense. And Zachariah's finger, I don't know how many he put out, but it worked perfect to get him in to the heart, the inner sanctum. He was chosen, verse 9, by lot according to the custom. Drop down to verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And by the way, they're not only outside, they're all over the Roman Empire. Everybody knows it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's the hour of prayer, and every Jew everywhere stops and lifts up a prayer to the God of the universe. Zechariah is interceding on behalf of all those believers. It's a, his heart is going, ba-bum, 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 just to have that privilege. Some priests never got it their whole ministry. He got it. And something happens. You know the story. Verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, I love this angel. We're going to find out his name in a moment, and it's Gabriel. Gabriel always begins with the words, Do not be afraid. He did that with Mary last week. He does it. He's going to do it with the shepherds on the night Jesus is born. Don't be afraid. He does it with the women at the tomb, as we found out on Easter Sabbath. That's his, that's his lingo. Don't be afraid. But the angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Do you know what? It wasn't until this last week that I, it finally hit me. The prayer that Zechariah had been praying. I used to think it was the prayer to have a baby. God, just give us a baby. God, just give us a baby, please. But it can't be that prayer. You know why? Because he's his mid-60s, almost 70. Nobody in his or her right mind at that age is praying, God, give me a baby. <laughs> oh, I see some of you still are. Okay, well, that's okay. So it can't be the prayer, give us a baby. There's only one prayer left that, that Zechariah has been praying. Tell me what that prayer would be. God, send the Messiah. Oh, God, send the Messiah back to earth. Send the Messiah. There's Gabriel. And the first thing he says to him, I've got great news for you. Your prayer has been answered. can't be a baby. The baby hasn't come yet. Your prayer has been answered. 
the Messiah is coming. Isn't that great? I tell you what, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth are devout, devout little A Adventists. They've spent their whole lives praying for the Messiah to come. Do you pray for the Messiah to come? Here's the good news from that little insight. Here's the good news. Every prayer we're praying for the Messiah is being heard in heaven's throne room. Isn't that something? Gabriel stands next to Christ himself. So they're hearing all the prayers. You know, Master, they're still asking for you. You haven't forgotten, have you? No, Gabriel, I haven't forgotten. They're still praying for you. I know they are. Ladies and gentlemen, we can never stop praying. I don't care what they say about Harold Camping and his followers. We can never stop praying for the return of Jesus Christ. That's why we live. That's why we breathe. That's why we exist. Your prayer has been answered, Zechariah. Oh, I love this. Listen to this. Your wife, we just read this in verse 13. Elizabeth's going to bear you a son. You're going to call his name John. Verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Oh boy, will he. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And Zechariah, your boy will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I'm through, Gabriel said. End of message. And Zechariah, staring, finally finds his voice. And what does he ask? How can this be? How does he, he put it here in verse 10? How can this be? I am an old man. And my wife is well along in years. By the way, that's a good way, gentlemen, for, all, for, for you to describe your wife always that way. I'm old. She's well advanced in years. She's not old. She's well advanced in years. Learn a lesson from Zechariah. Isn't that amazing? Zechariah says, how can it be? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Last week we found out this young virgin teenager, she asked on paper, it's the identical question. She says, how can it be? I'm a virgin. He says, how can it be? I'm too old. They both ask the same question, but one of them gets struck dumb and the other is encouraged and blessed. What's happening? Obviously, the spirit of the question is different in those two hearts, as Gabriel will note in just a moment. Mary says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. And Zachariah says, huh, can this be? No faith. And Gabriel spots it. He knows the heart and he... This line that we looked at last week, I love this. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Hebrew, it means strong man of God, as we noted last week. I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. That means he's one of the covering cherubs. He is the number one cherub that took the place of fallen Lucifer. He was number two. Lucifer fell. He moved to number one. He stands at the right hand of God. Gabriel loves the right hand. He shows up in Jesus' tomb. He's on the right hand of the tomb. He shows up to Zechariah. He's on the right hand of the golden altar of incense. When he stands before Christ, he's next to Christ. He is on the right hand of Christ. I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I love this. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Because that's the truth about Gabriel. He's the good news angel. Whenever there's bad news, he shows up with good news. There's always bad news when he shows up, but he shows up with good news. That's why it's the gospel according to Gabriel. The good news. But, Zechariah, 
verse 20, Now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. God reads the heart. The angelic companions we have, they all know what's going on inside. You don't have to play a game with them ever, ever. No charades. They know. You don't believe me. You said, huh, with that how. So what am I going to do? It's going to be quiet around your house for nine months until that baby comes. And the people outside, according to the record, the people outside are saying, hey, where was, where, 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 something's happened to him. Should somebody go in and find him? He hasn't come out. When he comes out, his face obviously is light with the glory of that vision, and he can't speak. He, just, he makes the signals, and when his time is up, he goes back to the hill country where they're living. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She goes five months into seclusion. And then the day comes for the baby to be born. And I love this part of the story, so don't miss it. Turn the page. Let's see, what verse would this be? This would be verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, 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 he's to, he's to be called John. Yekonan in the Hebrew. It's a common name. No, no, no. They said, wait a minute, wait, wait, hey, Elizabeth, there is no John in your family tree. He's Zachariah Jr. And Zachariah, isn't this something, verse 62. And so they turn to the father and they do what humans love to do. We, we go overboard when somebody has a physical impairment in our midst. We, we, we're trying to be so sensitive, we, 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 we go to the extreme. What do they do here? It says, and they made signs to his father. He's not deaf. He's not deaf. Talk to him. But we do that. Somebody comes walking up, oh, you know, we go all over. Treat him just like they are. It's a human, natural human reaction. Go overboard. They make signs. He says, listen, I can hear you. Just bring me something. And he scribbles it out. Verse 63, asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately... His mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. And oh, all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Last verse, 66. And everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. All right, so here's the question. Because we're only concentrating on the the words of Gabriel in these four parts. What is the gospel according to Gabriel in these words we have just read? Let's go back for one more moment and examine Gabriel's conversation with Zechariah with this question in mind. Could it be that what he describes as the calling of John the baptizer, could it be that before the second coming of the same Messiah, God will raise up a movement? Not a single man now, but an entire movement that would have the identical characteristics and high calling. That's the question. Could that be? Let me put some words on the screen for you written a century ago. In this age, just prior to the second coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven, God calls for men and women who will prepare a people to stand in the great day of the Lord. Just such a work as that which John did is to be carried on in these last days. With the earnestness that characterized Elijah the prophet... And John the Baptist, we are to strive to prepare the way for Christ's second advent, end quote. How are, do we, how are we to prepare the way for Christ's second advent? 
The Gospel according to Gabriel. Note now his seven-point movement. Seven-point description of this movement. See if it fits. Grab your study guide. Let's go. Grab your study guide. Jot these seven down and you're on your way. Did you get a study guide in your worship bulletin? Reach in your worship bulletin. There should be a study guide. It's as small as a bulletin, so it's not sticking out. You have to turn a few pages to find it. If you didn't get a study guide, ushers, let's get, let's, uh, get some study guides to them right now. Thank you, ushers. In the balcony here in the sanctuary. Hold your hand up if you need a study guide. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. We want you to plug right into this teaching. In fact, you can get the same study guide. You're online right now uh, streaming. Glad to have you as well. Go to your, uh, just type in our website. In fact, I'll put it on the screen for you, then you'll, you'll have it in front of you so you can type it in. You see it there now, www.pmchurch.tv. pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the new miniseries, The Gospel According to Gabriel, and this is part two. When you see part two, it says study guide. Click on the study guide. You will have the same study guide we have. Seven-point movement. Seven-point. How much of this has to do with you and me? We've, the whole press has been talking about Harold Camping and his followers. Is, is that the model? What's the model? Take a look at the model, because whatever it is, you've been called to it. Point number one, jot it down, please. It is to be a movement renowned before God. A movement renowned before God. So we're concentrating only on the words of Gabriel. So let's go back. Read verse 14. Gabriel is speaking here. Here, verse 14, He, John, will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Verse 15, For he will be great. Isn't that amazing? He will be great in the sight of the Lord. You think about it. Any messenger, any messenger who has been raised up to prepare the way for the Messiah who is coming in the eyes of heaven would have to be considered great, wouldn't you suppose? And if that's true about a messenger, wouldn't that be true about a movement? If, somebody, if somebody's been raised up, if an entire movement has been raised up to prepare the way for the Messiah's arrival on this planet, wouldn't heaven look at that movement as a great movement? Wouldn't they? I know the press doesn't. I mean, we've, this morality play that's going on in front of us, it's clear the sec, how the secular world feels. But I'm not worried about the press right now. It's in the sight of the Lord. In fact, you know what? This movement... The second coming movement is described in the Apocalypse, the Bible's last book. Let's put a Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Familiar words, then I looked and there before me was the Lamb. That's an apocalyptic symbol of Christ, the crucified one, standing on Mount Zion, heaven, and with him 144,000, that's his last generation, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Why would God stamp his name on some people's foreheads? All symbolic, I understand, but why? Because, whoa! This movement, these people are great to me. I have to have them. Somebody has to be talking about this on the planet before I can come back. Somebody. The truth is, our culture and our world cannot stomach the thought of people being renowned to God, proclaiming the end of all things is at hand. Just look at how Harold Camping and his followers have been treated in the press. I've got the South Bend Tribune that came out uh, a couple days ago. This is below the uh, cut here, front page. Some Christians ready for rapture. Saturday's end of times prediction drawing ridicule too. Let me just read a line for you. For some, it's judgment day. For others, it's party time. A Facebook page titled Post-Rapture Looting. 
offers this invitation. When everyone is gone and God's not looking, we need to pick up some sweet stereo equipment and maybe some new furniture for the mansion we're going to be squatting in. By Wednesday, 175,000 people signed up. I want to be a part of that show. Can you believe it? The prediction is being mocked in the comic strip, I'd say the irreverent comic strip, Doonesbury, and has inspired rapture parties to celebrate what hosts expect will be the failure of the world to come to an end. One more illustration here. In the army town of Fayetteville, North Carolina, the local chapter of the American Humanist Association has turned the event into a two-day extravaganza with a Saturday night party following, followed by a day-after concert, says uh, Jerry Weaver, organizer. It's not meant to be insulting, but come on, Christians are openly scoffing at this. And that's what amazes me. The Christians that are openly scoffing at this. What are we laughing at? What are we laughing at? It's painfully familiar. Is it not? A century ago, this end time, second coming movement was described this way. You'll need to fill this in in your study guide in these final hours of probation for the sons and daughters of men and women. When the fate of every soul is soon to be decided forever, the Lord of heaven expects His church to arouse. Come on, church, get up. Come on, church, we're pulling for you. He expects His church to arouse to action as never before. You've been sleeping now. Come on, church, it's time to wake up. Those who have been made free in Christ. I love that. Those who have been made free in Christ through a knowledge of precious truth, the gospel, are regarded by the Lord Jesus as His chosen ones. Would you put that in? It's no wonder this movement is great in his, in his eyes. The chosen ones, favored above all other people on the face of the earth. And he's counting on them now. Come on, I need you. Show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. One more sentence. The blessings which are so liberally bestowed. Every blessing you have, by the way, pass it on, are to be communicated to others. The good news of salvation is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. End quote. Somebody has to do it. He's not coming without the earth being warned that he's about to return. He's not going to come. Somebody has to do it. And by the way, do you think that the movement is great or the mission of the movement is great? Which do you think it is? Trust me. It's not even John the Baptist. It's the mission of John the Baptist that put him on the map. It's the mission that's great. Point one. This is a movement to be renowned before God. Jot it down. Point number two, it is a movement to be reserved for God. Stay with verse 15 for a moment. Reading again. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Hit the pause button right there. What's going on here? It appears that the baby John was to be raised as a Nazarite. Do you know what a Nazarite was? Not a resident of Nazareth. A Nazarite, according to number six, was an individual who voluntarily chose to be set apart exclusively for God, sometimes in direct contradistinction to the social norms of his community. And so Nazarites, no wine, no fermented drink, no barber. Some of you would like that. No barber. The child Samuel was raised as a Nazarite. The judge, Samson, was raised as a Nazarite. Some scholars believe that the wording in the Hebrew indicates that Joseph was raised as a Nazarite. John the Baptist, a Nazarite. 
What is a Nazarite? Jot it down, will you please? The Nazarite vow was a radical, personal, physical, and moral choice to live utterly reserved for God alone. I belong only to Him. Radical reserve. I belong only to Him. I want to go back to that inspirational, that inspiring devotional in the life of Christ, Desire of Ages. Put it on the screen. Speaking of John the Baptist, you'll have to fill this in. John was to go forth as Jehovah's messenger. To bring men and women the light of God. Such a messenger must be holy. Dwight, what does it mean to be holy? Put it in brackets there. It means holy gods. Without reserve, I belong to you. That's what it means to be holy. Not some kind of crazy, crazy attire you wear to draw attention to yourself. That's not what it means to be holy. It just means to be holy gods. Misspell the word holy. You'll have it. Holy gods. He must be a temple. Would you write that in? Suddenly now, what I do to this body matters. I can't just willy-nilly throw whatever I want inside the body. I am a temple of the Most High God. John knew that he must now be a temple for the indwelling Spirit of God. In order to fulfill his mission, he must have sound physical constitution and mental and spiritual strength. Therefore, it would be necessary for him to control the appetites and passions. Guys, I am telling you what, America is at the other end of this spectrum. Way other end. we got medicines now so that you can eat till midnight and then swallow the medicine and it will make you sleep and you'll wake up without uh, that heartburn. We have medicated ourselves to allow for an appetite run wild. John said, the word to John is, no, 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 no. You're going to control that appetite. You'll control it. You will not eat what everybody eats around you. You will not drink what everybody drinks around you. You will exercise. Well, how does, how does Desire of Ages put it right here? Therefore, it would be necessary for him to control the appetites and passions. He must be so able to control all his powers that he could stand among men and women as unmoved by surrounding circumstances as the rocks and mountains of the wilderness, end quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is precisely the kind of teenagers, young adults, men and women this movement needs today who are willing to take control Not being driven by television and your passions and your appetites. Take control. You can't do it in your own power. We all understand that. It's the power of Christ. But there has to be a people on earth that are willing to say, I don't care what people say, I'm standing apart. I'm reserved for God alone. Does the apocalypse recognize people like that? I'm not going to look this up, but you know that Revelation 7, 2, and 3, just before the end of time, this angel comes out of of the east, and that angel says, Hey, hold off the winds, the destroying tornadoes. Hold them all off just a little longer. We have to seal the servants of God. What does the seal mean? It means I am totally reserved for Almighty God. There will be a generation at the end, and you've been called to be it. Point number three, jot it down. It is to be a movement refilled by God. I like that. Verse 15 is right here. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Then it says he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And finally, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, the updated NIV, which I'm reading from, did you catch that? He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. The old NIV reads he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And the New King James, the Pew Bible reads, he will be filled from the, with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Guess what? They're all correct in rendering the Greek. The fact of the matter is, would you jot this down? And I don't care how old you are right now as you jot this down. The fact of the matter is that God had a plan for your life before you were born. You're no accident. 
You're not here, God saying, you know, well, the girl's here now, what am I going to do with her? God's saying, she came. On time. He's here. Activate plan A. And by the way, if you blow plan A, he's got plan B for you. If you blow plan B, he's got plan C. He's got the whole alphabet, and he'll do double letters, however long it takes to get his plan working in your life. You've got to find the plan. That's the point. Look what he says to Jeremiah. Isn't this great? Jot this down in your, in your study guide. Jeremiah chapter 1. Before I formed you in the womb. Jeremiah is just a kid. Before I formed you in the womb, I called you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Paul comes along and says, hey, me too, me too. Look at this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, God set me apart from my mother's womb. And he called me by his grace. Paul, who has an awful life, he's going to end up being a murderer of men, women, and children. He got called from the womb. Apparently, you can get called from the womb, screw up your life, and still get placed into God's mission. Some of you are saying, my life is so messed up, I can't go into the mission. Now, (laughs) that's not true. I don't care how messed up your life past has been. You can go into the mission when you're ready. I love Psalm 138. Why is God so big on putting this plan in operation? (laughs) Look at this, Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. God has a plan for your life from the get-go. Are you, hold, are you stiff-arming Him? Yo, God, I don't know. I don't want that plan. I don't want that plan. I have my own plan. I have my own dreams. Don't ask me to do that. Are you stiff-arming God? Let your arm down. Let Him move in. This is what will bring the greatest fulfillment to your life. His plan for you. If you're, putting, you're, you're forcing into plan B. It's not The greatest would be plan A. Let Him go plan A. Let Him go plan A. You'll never regret it. Never regret it. And by the way, moms and dads and little cherubs, we've got a bunch of you here judging from these screaming memes who are up here for the uh, children's story today. <laughs> Father, I would suggest you let your wife do a little bit more of this uh, disciplining because she'll be grateful. All right, I want to say a a word to you moms and dads with your little cherubs. God's strategic will to fill your child with His Holy Spirit is from the very beginning of life. I'm going to share something astounding from the same desire of ages. Put it on the screen for you. Can you believe this? Even the babe in its mother's arm may dwell as under the shadow of the Almighty through the faith of the praying, write that in, the praying mother. There there, There are mothers all over the earth that don't pray for their children. I understand that. That may have been your mother. It... It was not mine, but it may have been your mother. That's okay. I'll get to you in a moment. But praying mother. We've got some young mothers here. Pray, mother. Pray, 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 pray. Keep going because this gets even better. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. If we parents will live in communion with God, we too may expect the divine spirit to mold our little ones even from their earliest moments straight out of the womb. Boom. I've been praying for my baby before the baby was born. God says, good for you, because I'm going to meet you in the, in the delivery room, and I'm going to start shaping that little life. Thanks to you, Mother. Thanks for praying, giving me permission. I'm starting right now. Boom! That baby then starts going. There goes the plan. Engaged. Isn't that something? How awesome and consequential the spiritual influence of parents over their children. Don't you ever stop praying. And by the way, your kids have already left, already left your home. Start praying for your grandkids. Kids have already left your home. Keep praying for your kids. But start praying for your grandkids. Pray, for, pray, 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 pray. You're saying, Dwight, I never had a praying father. I never had a praying mother. In fact, I don't know who my father is. It's okay. It's not a big deal. God says, I still want you to be filled with the Spirit. I knew you. You were no accident. 
I knew you. You came on my schedule. I've had my eye on you from the beginning. I'm glad we finally meet. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Watch this. This is what he's saying to you. You can be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> Paul saying the command, be filled with the Spirit. Well, how am I going to be filled with the Spirit? Jesus himself, the red letters of Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, Jesus speaking, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who do what? What does it say, congregation, to do what? You've got to ask. You've got to ask. You want the Holy Spirit? Look at this. Actually, the apostles, we shared this last week with Mary. Look at this. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Ask. 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 This is a movement. Refilled. Refilled. Refilled by God. So ask. Just like Gao Hongzi did last week. You weren't here last week. Incredible story. Happened in China. It's on the podcast. You get it. You'll be filled. Point four. Jot it down. It is a movement to be revived by God. A movement to be revived by God. We're now in verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. You see that word back? When you, when you revive somebody, you bring them back to life. That's what revival is. It brings what is dead back to life. One of the most unforgettable childhood memories for me. Isn't it something how something sticks in your brain when you're a kid and it's just in your brain for the rest of your life? We were at a summer camp. I'm just a little tyke. I don't remember the age. We're at a summer camp and I can see it in my mind. One of the campers drowned. So they, they're dragging the camper out and they're performing CPR on that lifeless body. You never forget that all your life. And I was just a kid. The church today is not unlike the church in the time of John the Baptist. We have the ancient faith of our fathers and mothers, but the church in some quarters is going lifeless. CPR, resuscitation, please, life support. This movement will be raised up by God to bring life, revive life back in to the body and community of Christ. The leaders of our global church today are earnestly inviting us again and again. If you notice this, every time they come up here, they come around here, they're telling us, please seek the reviving power of God. Join together at 7 o'clock in the morning. You don't like 7, try 8. If you don't like 8, try 9. But join together every day in asking God to pour out His Spirit upon this movement because we're dead unless He does. Point five, it is to be a movement reformed, not only revived by God, but reformed by God. Look at verse 17. And he, John, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. I love that song that we sang a moment ago, Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. That's speaking of a movement, a movement at the end of time. What is it? It is a reformation movement. Thus the showdown on Mount Carmel. One lone defender of the Most High God and a horde of pagan priests of Baal and Asherah. One man against the world. One movement. Just one. Every Bible I have, all right? Every Bible I have for the page belonging to Luke 1, verse 17, whatever that page is, I write these words on that page because I never want to forget the words of the great French philosopher and mathematician. His name, Blaise Pascal. 
I'm going to put the words on the screen. They're not in your study guide. I'm putting the words on the screen that are in all my Bibles on the page of Luke 1. Blaise Pascal became a great Christian, believer in Christ. When everyone is moving toward depravity, no one seems to be moving. Have you ever ridden, gotten off on a subway, get off on a subway, and the whole crowd, and because the crowd is just around you, and everybody's moving at the same pace, you can't sometimes even tell you're moving. That's, that's Pascal's point. When everyone is moving toward depravity, no one seems to be moving. But if someone stops, he shows up the others who are rushing on by, acting as a fixed point. That was Elijah. He stopped. Here I stand in the name of Almighty God. And boy, the hordes of the world went by. But they suddenly knew they were moving because one man stood still. That was John the Baptist. One man stands still. And society knows it's been moving in the wrong direction to perdition. There'll be a movement on earth at the end of time and that movement will stand still and hold the ground for God. And the world will know. And by the way, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a little pastor. But the vitriol woven into the reaction against Harold Camping and his followers is from those who know he has staked out high ground and they're moving in the opposite direction. And to cover up the conviction, the ridicule, the laughter. I suppose they laughed at Noah. Huh? Do you think they laughed at Noah? I know they laughed at John the Baptist. The hierarchy wouldn't even accept him. And Jesus nailed him just before his death. You wouldn't even accept him, would you? And they couldn't even answer his question. I know this movement will not be a movement of popularity. Whatever that movement is at the end of time, but if God is calling you to be a part of that movement, who cares what the rest think? You stand alone. You mark that ground. You'll become a fixed point, and the world will know they're going the wrong direction. Point six. Write it down. There'll be Elijah movement at the end of time. Malachi 4, by the way, we're not going to look it up. Malachi 4 says, I'm going to send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, just before the return of Christ. Okay, we're moving to just two left here. Point six, it is to be a movement reconciled for God. There it is, a movement reconciled for God. How does verse 17 read? And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Isn't it something? Those are the last words. Gabriel is quoting the last words of the Old Testament. The final words are those words right there. Isn't it something that the Old Testament ends with a call to be reconciled? Parents with children, brothers with sisters, children with parents, friends and colleagues with each other, church members with church members, neighbors and strangers, radical reconciliation. You know what? This is what nobody ever talks about, but could this be the reason why there's no revival and reformation in the movement today? We don't get along. We don't get along. And so we publish our articles we whet our swords and we publish our articles and we dice them. Dice the opposition. And both sides have their publications and both publications work hard. But could it be that in the process we've lost the love of Christ for each other? Be reconciled. This movement has to be reconciled or there will never be a revival. You can preach and print revival till you're blue in the face. We'll never have a revival until we learn to start loving each other. And that has to start at the top and work its way down. And it needs to start at the grassroots and work its way up. 
Desire of Ages, put it on the screen. Love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was to implant this love to make us children of one family. That the King of glory became one with us. And when His parting words are fulfilled, love one another in the church as I have loved you. When we love the world too as He has loved it, then for us His mission is accomplished. Guess what? We are fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Revival has come. We have heaven now in our hearts. We can go to heaven. We'll never go to heaven without that love in our hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, you can pray to your blue in the face. We will not go to heaven. We will not go to heaven. There will be no revival. Nobody talks about that. Final point, number seven. It is to be a movement ready for Christ. Last line, verse 17. And He will make ready. Drop down to the end of verse 17. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I don't mind telling you here in closing that I have been drawn to that line for a bunch of years now. I don't know what it is that stirs me up every time I read that line. That's why I put that Blaise Pascal quotation on that line. Scribble notes all around that line. Because I keep asking myself, and I wish you'd help me here, I keep asking myself, what is it going to take to wake up our community of faith to be unleashed for the kingdom of heaven? What is it going to take to make a people ready, to ready a people prepared for the Lord? Can I put it this way? I know there's some people that are really uncomfortable ever asking questions like this. I've heard them mention this, but I'm going to mention it anyway. If Jesus came tonight at 6 o'clock, let's say camping is right. You've got a few minutes. If Jesus were coming tonight at 6 o'clock, how would you be living right now? Now, I'm serious. How would you be living right now? What would you change? What would you quickly adjust? What would you make right? What would it be that you would want to adjust so that when He comes at 6 o'clock, you can greet Him in peace? Do you know what it will take? I'll show you what it will take. Take the Greek word right here, to make ready a people prepare for the Lord. Take that same Greek word. Guess what? Amazing. It shows up in the song. We want to end with this. The song that Zacharias sings, the last stanza of his song. When his tongue is loose, the Holy Spirit comes on him in verse 67 and he sings this song. Drop down to verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, there's that same word, same word, to make ready the way for him. The word Gabriel uses, Zechariah uses as well. How are you going to make ready the a people for him, verse 77, you give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's how you make a people ready. You start focusing on the Savior. You point to the Savior. The knowledge of salvation. The forgiveness of sins. You tell people that the good news about Calvary, the everlasting gospel of Calvary, is that we all got forgiven 2,000 years ago. You can't talk God into forgiving you now. You've already been forgiven. You've already been forgiven. Point to Jesus, the Savior. That's how you prepare a people for the coming of Christ. You talk about Jesus. You point to the Savior. Harold Camping and his followers tomorrow are going to regroup. They have to. My counsel to them Don't spend your energies now pointing at a date, but spend your energies pointing at the Savior, and you will make ready a people 
Prepare for the Lord. And by the way, that is true for Seventh-day Adventists as well. Point to the Savior. That's how you prepare a people made ready for the Lord. I'm going to close with two choruses. I sang these as a boy. I apologize if you don't know them, but I do. And I want you to sing. I think, you'll, I th- I think you know them. These are two choruses. I'm going to put them back to back because we really need the two back to back in order to capture the, the truth about the seven-point movement. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We'll put the words on the screen. The moment I start singing them, you know them. Sing it out. The person beside you will, will, will pick it up with you. I want to be ready. And then we'll go, we'll transition right into that second chorus. So sing it with me, will you please? I want to be So, Holy Father, we, we turn our eyes to the Savior. He's the only one that can prepare a people. He's the only one that can save a world. We turn our eyes upon Jesus because we want to be ready when He comes. Do whatever you need to do so that the peace of Christ will abide deep in our hearts and we shall rest in the security of His saving grace. And, oh God, don't just revive a people. Save the world, we pray, and use us any way you wish to that end. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.